Welcome to Madison's Notes, the official podcast of Princeton University's James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions. I'm your host, Nino Scalia. Our website is jmp.princeton.edu, and our Twitter handle is at Madison Program. It's great to have you with us. Hello and welcome back to Madison's Notes. I'm your host, Nino Scalia, and our guest today is Shiloh Brooks. Shiloh Brooks is faculty director and teaching associate professor in the engineering leadership program, associate faculty director of the Benson Center for the Study of Western Civilization, and an affiliated faculty member in the Lockheed Martin Engineering Management Program and the Herps Program for Engineering, Ethics, and Society, all at the University of Colorado Boulder. Shiloh was a visiting fellow here at the James Madison program in 2019-20 and has also held appointments in the University of Virginia's program on constitutionalism and democracy in the Department of Government and Legal Studies at Bowdoin College. Brooks teaches and writes about political theory, liberal education, and leadership. His book, Nietzsche's Culture War, examines Friedrich Nietzsche's critiques of modern culture, education, in science. He received his PhD in political science from Boston College and his BA in liberal arts from the Great Books Program at St. John's College in Annapolis, Maryland. He joins us today to discuss Xenophon's Education of Cyrus. Shiloh Brooks, welcome to Madison's Notes and welcome back to the James Madison Program. Thank you for having me, Nino. It is a real pleasure to be back at the James Madison Program, one of my favorite places uh, on the planet. Well, we miss you here. And I don't know if you noticed this, but I am actually, I have actually taken over your office. Oh, you have. have. <laughs> well, suitable, fitting. I, you deserve I laid, it. I laid siege to it and, and, and took it. Um, <laughs> but okay, uh, Shiloh, before we wade into the education of Cyrus, could you say a little more about this engineering leadership program? I think listeners will find it really interesting. Yeah, so the engineering leadership program at the University of Colorado um, tries to give technically minded students a liberal education. Uh, and it does this uh, by way of introducing them to great books and leadership. And the idea is that technical education alone does not prepare one to face um, the, the changes, the unknown and unknowable sorts of things that technology will do to democratic society in the future. The only thing that can prepare someone to do that, it's, it's not equations, it's not thermodynamics, it's not calculus, but an intimate uh, acquaintance and relationship with the best that's been thought and said. And so we read great books on leadership, like the one we're going to uh, talk about today, The Education of Cyrus, Machiavelli's Prince, books by Plato, uh, biographies of great leaders, um, in every discipline in an effort to supplement technical education with uh, liberal education so that uh, technical leaders of tomorrow don't look so much like uh, the ones of today. They have some sense for what uh, technology does to society. Sure. And uh, one more question about the program, and this is drawn from the program's website, and I'm going to quote that here. Mm -hmm. Students in the engineering leadership program are encouraged to see engineering leadership as a humane discipline that requires lifelong reflection on questions that arise within the purview of science, but which science alone cannot answer. Questions that arise within the purview of science, but which science alone 
cannot answer. Can you unpack that? Because the world's ongoing experience with COVID seems to have put this front and center. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, science and technology have gradually come to encompass a larger and larger horizon of human life. They touch on almost every aspect of it. And so if you think of something like uh, love, just think about the way in which Tinder has changed courtship, a way that technology has altered human behavior forevermore. You can certainly think of easier things like birth control and other things. But I would just uh, point out uh, or, or think about the way that Silicon Valley has altered the way we, we practice democracy, Twitter or something like this, Facebook. These are, these are the low-hanging fruit. Um, but the same would be true of almost any sort of technology. If, if technology does something for you that you used to do for yourself, then you don't have to do that thing for yourself anymore or you do it in a different way. And so the engineering leadership program tries to um, look at those questions which science purports to have an answer to uh, and show that science alone is ill-equipped to answer those questions. And so we, you know, we, like I said earlier, we do this by bringing to bear a great philosophy on um, questions that are perpetual and that are, are intertwined with technology. Yeah, absolutely. All right. And with that, let's go ahead and turn to today's great work of philosophy, the education of Cyrus. And let's start with the author, Xenophon. What can you tell us about Xenophon? You know, Xenophon is, uh, for my money, one of the most compelling uh, thinkers of the ancient world. And the reason that he's so compelling is that Xenophon was both an extraordinary political talent and an extraordinary philosopher. And he, he combines these two into one man. He was a contemporary of Plato, um, but unlike Plato, he had long experience in practical politics and the military. And so he, you know, he's probably best known today as a writer of um, extraordinary books on politics, the education of Cyrus, the Anabasis, the Hellenica, the Hiero, uh, Economicus. He also wrote books, I would call them gentlemen's books on horsemanship, hunting with dogs. And then, of course, he wrote uh, Socratic books like the memorabilia, uh, the symposium, like Plato has a symposium, so does Xenophon, and the Apology. Um, he was, uh, most, his most famous political exploit was that he led 10,000 Greek mercenaries out of the Persian Empire um, when the mission that they were on with Cyrus the Younger, not the Cyrus we're going to talk about today, uh, Cyrus the Younger attempted to overthrow his brother Artaxerxes. Um, that, that mission went awry. And so Xenophon really comes to his own, and he describes this in this book, um, The Anabasis. Uh, and so, you know, that's his sort of claim to political fame. This was a book that was used in language classes, classics classes for years as a kind of translation book. So many young uh, people uh, in the 19th century would have been familiar with Xenophon. Um, he lived much of his life in exile uh, from Athens and Sparta, both because his teacher Socrates had, of course, been executed in Athens, and Xenophon was something of a Spartan sympathizer uh, in his life. Uh, Sparta had won the Peloponnesian War. Um, Xenophon uh, was a sympathizer, and so he could not go back home. I, I would say one uh, last thing about Xenophon, which is, I think, important. He's a philosopher for people with a political taste, people mm. with a with a political uh, nature, he he sings a siren song. So he certainly did to me, and I know he does to you, Nino. Um, it, it, we should read what he has to say because he was a philosopher uh, whose views were tempered and shaped by a lifespan in politics. And so, for as I said, for my money, um, there is there is almost no more uh, 
uh, intriguing figure of the ancient world in Xenophon. And yet it doesn't seem to me that Xenophon is all that widely read today. You mentioned there that he used to be read in classics classes the world over. There's a letter from Thomas Jefferson, I think, to his nephew, in which he says he absolutely must read The Education of Cyrus. Why did Xenophon fall out of favor? You know, that's a good question. And I'm I'm not uh, I'm not so sure. I mean, certainly, you know, Plato, Aristotle, Cicero dominate. dominate the, the study of ancient philosophy. I, my sense is that Xenophon, at least in some circles, is not thought to be an intellectual heavyweight on the order of a Plato or Aristotle, precisely because of his long experience in politics. But the other thing would be, um, and this Leo Strauss has picked up on, Xenophon writes in a manner it, it, so as to appear coldly political, um, And yet beneath what Xenophon writes are deep and profound philosophic tensions. So it it might well be that Xenophon fell out of fashion because the proper manner of reading Xenophon fell out of fashion. He requires a taste. He's very understated. Um, Some of his books are extraordinarily historical. They appear to be histories. And so it was really Leo Strauss who revived the study of of Xenophon primarily by showing us that there's much more beneath the surface of Xenophon uh, than mere history and, uh, you know, gentlemen's talk about horses and war. Let's turn to the book now and and begin at sort of a 50,000 foot level, because I know we'll have some listeners who are intimately familiar with this book and others who have never even heard of it. And maybe this will be their introduction to the book. So who is this Cyrus that Xenophon writes about and what does he do? Yeah, so the Xenophon uh, uh, writes about a Cyrus who it's important to remember never existed. The, Cyrus the Great was a real man, but the Cyrus in the education of Cyrus is a Greekified version of, of Cyrus the Great. And so what you get in the education of Cyrus is in a certain way, one of the first historical novels that is to say, it's true that the, the Cyrus took over the Persian Empire, you know, built the Persian Empire and took over most of the known world. But, you know, Cyrus would have been a Persian man. You know, Xenophon uh, gives him a very Greek orientation. There are Greek gods. They're swearing by Zeus. Um, you know, Persia looks a lot like uh, Sparta in terms of its educational system. And so Xenophon takes this figure, Cyrus, and doesn't write a history. You shouldn't read the education of Cyrus as a history. It's a didactic book. It's a book meant, meant to teach you something. Um, and so the premise of the book is that Cyrus is the greatest political human being ever to exist in the world, that he has solved the perpetual problem of politics, which Xenophon states in book one, is uh, the problem of ruling human beings as though they were animals, such that they don't rebel the way a shepherd rules sheep. And Xenophon says things of Cyrus like, people who were so far away from him that they would never see him were willing to obey him. And so the book presents Cyrus as a solution, a human solution to a perpetual political problem of obedience and revolt. Somehow this Cyrus solves that equation. And the question of the book is how? And so Xenophon proceeds through the book to elaborate Cyrus's education and his nature and his exploits to try to give the reader an an account of the political nature and the political project of world empire on the grand scale. 
The title of the book is The Education of Cyrus. So what should we know about this education? That is, what is he taught? How does he learn? Well, you know, the title is a real puzzle because yeah. if, you, if you sat down with the education of Cyrus and thought, you know what, I'm going to get eight books. This education of Cyrus consists of eight books broken up into chapters. I'm going to get eight books on the education of a great leader and how to educate a great leader. You're going to be disappointed. And the reason is that the formal education of Cyrus is over in book one. And yet there are seven remaining books. So why is the book called the Syropideia, the education of Cyrus, when his education at home with the Persians, his education abroad with his grandfather, the Medeans, and the education he receives from his father in a very important scene, the uh, Cambyses, this all concludes in book one. The question is, what is the title, what does it mean? And so I think the key you know, to understanding the meaning of the title is to think more expansively about the role of education um, in the book. One of the things that you see in the education of Cyrus books two through eight is that Cyrus provides an education to his men for his own purposes. In the way what he does is he re-educates the Persians or uneducates them. They are a people of virtue a people of sort of Spartan virtue. If you've ever read Plutarch's Life of Lycurgus, you know what the Persians are about. They, they, you know, they, um, there's this thing called the free square in the in old Persia. And they work hard and they, they uh, uh, learn justice. They learn war, uh, these sorts of things. They sleep outside. They're educated in moderation. Um, but the primary feature of their education is that virtue is its own reward. It does not require additional rewards. It's its own reward. Cyrus throughout the education of Cyrus, but in, in, in particular in some crucial speeches, tells them, what are you guys talking about? Virtue should be rewarded. Let's go, let's go get some good stuff. And so he re-educates them and tells them that the most excellent people should get rewards. Uh, he does a number of these sort of re-education um, uh, moves in the education of Cyrus. So that's one dimension of the title, but the title could also indicate something about the additional education Cyrus receives, or at least should receive, after his formal education is over. There are characters who come up in the book, a gentleman named Tigranes, a woman named Panthea, a great general who was a, 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 a real great general, Croesus, all of whom try to teach Cyrus something. And so sometimes Cyrus appears to ask them to teach him something. It's not clear that he learns. And so what does Cyrus learn or fail to learn um, in the rest of the book? Um, the other thing that you might think uh, with respect to the title is what is, uh, Cyrus's education status when compared to the education of Xenophon. Xenophon was a student of Socrates. Cyrus mm. was not. Mm. So we should ask ourselves the question, how does Xenophon's philosophic education, the education of a philosopher and political man by Socrates, differ from the education that Cyrus received? And why might Xenophon's Socratic education be superior to the education um, Cyrus received? So the the title is full of all kinds of, of ironies and puzzles that if you read the book deeply, you can think about education in all of its manifold forms. You tipped your hand here already, but like you said, Cyrus seems not to appreciate virtue and I think, or friendship as things that are good for their own sake. So for example, it's, it's good to have a friend, not because friendship is itself a good thing, is itself a desirable thing, but because your friends might be of some service to you. It's good to be virtuous and it's good to pursue excellence, not because the development of our God-given talents and our characters are a worthwhile endeavor, 
but it's only worthwhile, Cyrus says, if it leads to our benefiting from it. As he says, quote, I do not think that human beings practice any virtue in order that those who become good have no more than do the worthless, end quote. So you mentioned Cyrus grows up in this Persia, this sort of uh, Greekified Persia. It seems a lot like the Sparta we know, as you said. Where does this come from in Cyrus? Is this something in his nature? Is he himself miseducated in some way and begins to see friendship and virtue and perhaps other things only as uh, means to other ends and not, not good in and of themselves? What do we make of that? Well, it's a good question. And, you know, a central theme of the book is what elements of Cyrus's nature mix with Cyrus's education to produce a leader who is, in, for all intents and purposes, the most competent and capable exemplar of the political life ever to existed, and then goes on to take over the known world in extraordinary, with extraordinary rapidity. But one of the tools in his tool belt is what you describe, that Cyrus takes the notion of virtue as being good for its own sake and intrinsically rewarding and says to his men, let's go get something for it. And part of me thinks that Cyrus genuinely thinks that it's unjust not to give excellent people their due that that's unjust and that must be corrected. Hmm. And, you know, you see this at certain, this requires some finesse, but you see this at certain points. There's one place in the book where he, he says that all vile people must be, um, uh, must be ejected from the army. We don't want anyone who's a vile person. We only want virtuous people. Um, you, you know, you, you get this sense that Cyrus has a moral, um, chip on his shoulder. There's something wrong with the way the world works and he wants to make it right. Now, there's also a very practical reason for Cyrus to, 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 to switch this teaching around. He may have some moral indignation that the good people aren't rewarded and he wants to see that they are because it's really awful when vile people are rewarded. The cheaters and the stealers, they get the rewards. But beyond that, of course, there's this practical advantage that if he wants people to come and fight for him, uh, he needs to promise them some benefit for it. He, he wants to create a war machine. And like a locomotive that you have to shovel coal into, once you tell people um, virtue deserves rewards, well, you got to start shoveling in rewards. But that means you got to go on a campaign. And if you go on a campaign, that means you're taken from everybody. And that means that you can slowly conquer the entire world and take from them and make it yours. And so Cyrus has ambitions to be the ruler of the world. And in order to do that, he has to undertake a psychological experiment on his men to make them thirst for the kind of campaign that rule, uh, world conquership requires. But at the same time, he seems to get a two for one because he thinks um, by in doing so, he'll ensure that the good get what they deserve. And he, as the most excellent man, presumably would also get what he deserves, which is the kingship of the world. Now, this comes out in one very important scene as we talk about Cyrus's nature. Um, you know, we could talk about all sorts of things, but there's a very pivotal scene near the beginning of the book where Cyrus is visiting his grandfather in Medea, and his mother says, Cyrus, it's time to come, it's time to go home. We've been visiting for a while, we need to go home. And he says, I want to stay here with my grandfather. This is important because his grandfather's a tyrant. 
Cyrus has never seen a tyrant in action before. And so he's presumably getting an education from his grandfather. Um, we could ask the question, well, what does the education of Cyrus in book one consist? Well, he spends time with the tyrant. He spends time at home with Persia under the Persian laws. So he's some peculiar combination of law and tyranny in his soul. At any rate, he wants to stay with his grandfather. And so his mother says, well, Cyrus, if you stay with your, your grandfather, Astyages, how will you learn what justice is? Don't we need to go back to Persia to learn what justice is? And he says, oh, mother, I already know what justice is. And she says, you do? And he says, yes, in fact, I was beaten for saying what I thought justice was by a teacher. And she says, you were? And he says, yes, there was a big boy who had a little tunic. And then there was a little boy who had on a big tunic. And I was asked, what should I do in this circumstance? And I said, well, they should trade. The big boy should get the big tunic. The little boy should get the little tunic. And they beat me for it. And he says, they beat me for it because uh, the Persians, uh, for them, what is just is what is lawful. But for me, I suggested that what was just was what is fitting for each individual, not what was lawful. It was lawful for each boy to keep his respective tunic, even if it was ill-fitting. But I thought the most fitting thing would be for them to trade, and I was beaten for it. And so what you see when you, when you think about Cyrus becoming world conqueror, making um, uh, the virtue rewarding for his men, is you see him doing what's fitting for them, sticking to the principle of the fitting. And so this, uh, if, once you see this at work in Cyrus's motives, you can understand a great deal about the education uh, of Cyrus. There's an interesting theme throughout the book, and it's at times explicit, other times implicit. But this is the way military innovations can affect civil society. Can you say a word about that? Yeah, I mean, there are places in the book where it's clear that Cyrus's victories come as a consequence of his superior, um, how should I say, engineering, <laughs> to go back to the engineering leadership program, engineering uh, talents or technologies. And so, you know, one of the things that I often tell the students is, and I, and I said this in my prefatory remarks to you, anytime that something does something for you, it means you don't have to do it yourself. So if you can Google something, it means that you don't, your mind is not required to retain that information or to seek it out. And over a lifetime, that will very much shape the sort of mind that you possess. You're dependent on something, whereas in a previous era, you had to be uh, independent. You, you could only be dependent on yourself. Well, in the education of Cyrus, you know, as Cyrus's empire grows larger, one of the things that he realizes that he needs is horses badly because it's one thing to walk around and fight and be a primarily defensive nation the way Persia is. But if you're going to take over the world, you got to be able to move. You need a cavalry. You got to be able to chase people. If something's going wrong somewhere, you need to get there fast. I mean, ask the United States about the utility of fighter jets. I mean, you know, you got to be able to go. And so, so Cyrus introduces horses into the army. And on the one hand, this is very beneficial. On the other hand, it's a great corruption. And Xenophon suggests this at one point because he has one character say that Cyrus was in fact turning them into centaurs, which means that they were half men, half beast. But if they're half beast, they're, they're men of appetite. They're, you know, they're men who think virtue should have a reward. And so Cyrus is in a certain sense turning his men into, uh, into monsters. Um, but be that as it may, once you have horses, you don't walk anymore. You don't walk as much, you ride. 
Well, that has a an effect on the body. The body gets softer. It becomes less accustomed to hardship, uh, the calories that you burn and the food that you need to take in. And so Cyrus, uh, with, with respect to horses, siege engines, chariots, is constantly innovating in warfare. But this has a great effect on uh, both his soldiers and the kind of empire that he'll uh, have, its moral qualities and their moral qualities. Another one of the most, I don't know, maybe even the most important theme in the book is Cyrus's relationship with Eros. What should we know about that? It comes up very early in the book, right? This kiss from a uh, boyfriend who pretends to be a relative. And we see it all throughout. Cyrus's, at times, very complicated relationship with Eros. Yeah, so this, Nino, is, is... To my mind, one of the most important, um, a, a crucial themes in the book, and um, it, it, it's there from the very beginning, as you point out, in subtle places. The first place it appears, or at least begins to appear, is in book one, as a part of Cyrus's formal education. Again, as I said, he he's educated in Persia in this place called the Free Square, which educates in moderation and justice. But then he goes and visits his grandfather, who's a tyrant, and sees a tyrant um, in, in motion. And he's very desirous of his grandfather's love. He, he mm-hmm. constantly wants the praise and love of his grandfather. And even his grandfather, his grandfather has a cupbearer. And, you know, a cupbearer is somebody who they would drink the wine to make sure it wasn't poison and then give it to you. And Cyrus is just so jealous that this cupbearer gets to spend time with his grandfather. And he said, you know, he, he wants to he wants to be the guy whose grandfather trusts and whose grandfather loves. And so, you know, you start to see it there. Xenophon also says of Cyrus's nature that Cyrus was most desirous of praise more than anybody. He wanted to be praised. And that's not quite love, but it's close. He wanted people to praise him. And so you then get. This moment that you point out in book one, where uh, Cyrus is is leaving Medea to go back home to Persia because it's finally time after spending time with his grandfather to go back home, and there's this young man who um, you know kisses Cyrus, and Cyrus cries, um, and, and and it's very odd to see a, a a man of such a nature cry, and this is your first indication that the feeling of love is intoxicating for Cyrus. Mm -hmm. And this comes out time and time again in the book. And and I I put it this way, what does Cyrus want when he's conquering the world? He wants the love of the entire world. What does a leader, a ruler of the entire world want? Well, the love of the people, of all of the people. And Cyrus gets a taste of this when he's leaving Medea to go back home to Persia, and this young man kisses him. Well, prior to that uh, scene, the Medean people are just showering him with gifts, and he's giving them back to them, and they're showering him with gifts and talking about how excellent he is. He he feels the love of the people. And so there's this odd um, uh, fascination that Cyrus has with love. Now, this is important because, as you know, Socrates was a, the teacher of love par excellence in the ancient world. If you've ever read Plato's Symposium or his Lysis, you get a sense for this. So Xenophon, one, if Xenophon wrote a Symposium too, one should imagine Xenophon was an expert in erotics. And if this is the case, there's some deeply erotic teaching at the center of the education of Cyrus. And lo and behold, if you turn to the center of the book, which is book five, chapter one, um, that is about love. 
Book mm. five, chapter one is about love. Mm. And all of book five is in fact about love. You just have to read the chapters um, in, the, in the right ways and you can see that they're all about love. But in book one, chapter five, there's this scene where the Persians and the Persian alliance, all the people Cyrus has taken into his army along the way, they're really, um, really rolling. And they've taken this people and, uh, you know, they're, they're sort of conquering and taking from the Assyrians because Cyrus has to take over the Assyrians who are his sort of greatest foe in order to become ruler of the known world. And they bring him this beautiful woman. And they say in book five, chapter one, Cyrus, this woman is the most beautiful woman in all of Asia. And believe me, I, no one has ever seen anyone like her ever. Go see her. Let's, would you want to go see her? And he looks at them and he says, absolutely not. Yeah. Absolutely not. I do not want to go see her. You can compare this, by the way, to a scene in the memorabilia where Socrates is told a, a very beautiful woman has come to Athens. Do you want to go see her? And Socrates says, yes, now. Let's go right now and see her now. And he seduces her. <laughs> but at any rate, Cyrus says no. And they say, well, why not? And he says, well, I'd be, I'd be, if you gaze upon beautiful things, you're distracted from the things that you want to do. And then he gets into this argument with a young man who, who says, no, no, Cyrus, love is voluntary. You can choose whether you're going to fall in love with her or not. Just come see her. You're not going to fall in love with her. And he says, no, no, love is involuntary. You will fall in love with a beautiful person if you gaze at them long enough. I'm not touching that. It's involuntary. And so they have it out. And it's this long sort of, um, you know, sort of deeply philosophic uh, exchange that we could go into. But the result of this is that Cyrus says, hey, uh, okay, whatever. Okay, maybe love is, uh, is, is, uh, is voluntary. Why don't you go guard her since you're telling me that it's voluntary? The guy goes and guards her and he falls deeply in love with her. But, and so this is important, but what's so extraordinary about this whole scene is that if you look at book five, chapter one, and you, and you see that Cyrus says that he does not look upon beautiful people because in a certain sense, he is not interested in love. You will see uh, a great tension because in the second half of book five, chapter one, Cyrus goes to all of his men and says, stay with me. Will you stay with me? We can take over the world if you stay with me. Love me. Do you love me? I'll give you things. Love me. And so you have this man who says, oh, I'm not interested in, in love. Yet at the same time, this man is courting the entire book, the love of his army and the love of the world. And so there's a sense in which Cyrus is lovesick. He, mm. he, he's like any good alcoholic. He knows I can't have a drink or it will mess me up. But on the other hand, he's drinking the whole time because he's, he's courting the love of, of the entire world. And, and he says that he knows something of the power that beloveds have over their lovers. So if I go see this woman, she'll have a lot of power over me. And yet he wants to be the beloved of the entire world himself. Um, but in order to do that, he has to be the entire world's lover. He has to give them things. And so I, I know this is a long and sort of convoluted uh, remark, but this theme, the theme of the way in which ambition and eros are connected is central to this book. Does Cyrus, as you mentioned, he, he has a line, he says something to the effect about this beautiful woman. I don't touch fire. And so I won't touch beautiful people. I won't touch this beautiful woman. Yeah. And yet, as you point out, he's lovesick in a certain way. He begs the army to stay. He wants to be the beloved of the world. Does he not see this conflict 
or this contradiction? Or is it the case that the sort of erotic love of a woman has been supplanted by this love for conquest, for empire? And mm-hmm. I, I think, for example, at the end of the book, if, if I'm not giving away too much here, he talks about his conquest. He divvies up his empire to his sons. His wife is not there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, the question of Cyrus's self-awareness when it comes to his own relationship to love is, is one that I have not made up my mind about. You know, some people will say Cyrus is aware. Some might say he's not. My inclination, however, is to say that this might be a moment to consider the meaning of the title. There's some sense in which Cyrus's education with respect to Eros is defective Mm. and Xenophon's education was not. And so my sense is that in book five and by the end of the book as well, Xenophon is teaching us something that he knows and sees about the temptations of, say, public or political Eros that, that Cyrus does not know and does not see. And that leads Cyrus to do things which are in a certain sense foolish. I I put it this way, by the end of the book, and really by the middle of the book, but in, in practice by the end of the book, Cyrus has turned himself into a mortal god. He's wearing robes. He's wearing eyeshadow and heels. He appears with a bodyguard of 10,000. He looks like a god on earth, something different from everyone else. And what do gods want most from human beings? Love. Mm. Love me. And Cyrus has, in a certain sense, involuntarily forced the entire world to love him. He was right that love is involuntary. He made them love him because if they don't, he'll kill them. And so there's something about Cyrus which is extremely immoderate. Hmm. He, you, you know, Xenophon might look at him and say, you want to be a god on earth? Is that what you want with this whole world conquest ambition? And so my sense is that Cyrus does not see the degree to which he's tempted to folly by his desire for love, even to the point of, of uh, making gestures in the direction of himself being a divinity. Whereas Xenophon might look at that and in very important points in his analysis, he does turn down the option to say, be sole ruler, because that, that desire, what you're looking for when you're looking for that is not going to be fulfilling or rewarding in the deepest sense of the term. And so the life that Cyrus lived, which was motivated by an extraordinary moderation when it comes to Eros, leads to a life that Xenophon, into hopes and ambitions and thoughts that Xenophon simply thinks are not are not reasonable. Is, is my recollection correct that Cyrus leaves Persia um, at, at the age in which he would have been taught justice, but would not yet have been taught moderation? That's a good question. And I'm not sure because the, you know, the young boy, so for people who are listening, the, the uh, Persian education, which Cyrus went through at the beginning is broken up into four parts. Um, the young boys, and then the kind of adolescent boys, the mature men and the elders. And at each stage you do and learn different things. And so the young boys are taught justice by the elders and they are taught virtue. And so my sense is that 
by the time Cyrus leaves to go visit with his grandfather, he has something of a sense of the whole moral education. Um, but it, it may be true that he's not, if he's taught moderation, you know, he, it doesn't sink in. This comes up, by the way, um, in one of the most important scenes in the book, Cyrus takes over this um, place called Armenia. And in Armenia, um, there's a king and the king has been disloyal to one of Cyrus's allies. And so Cyrus puts the king on trial and the king has a son who is not present uh, for the battle that Cyrus has with this man. But at the time of the trial, it just so happens that this son shows up and his name is Tigranes. And um, Cyrus is about to kill Tigranes' father because Tigranes' uh, his father was disloyal to one of Cyrus's allies. And, you know, he was supposed to pay this, uh, the uh, Medeans a tribute and the Armenians didn't pay the Medeans a tribute and he wasn't supposed to build fortifications and the Armenian was building fortifications. And so Cyrus says, did you do these things, Armenian? And the Armenian says, yes. And uh, Cyrus says, well, if someone did these things uh, and you told them not to and you caught them doing them, what would you do? And the Armenian king says, I would kill him. And so Cyrus says, so I should kill you. And then this young man, Tigrani, speaks up and says, whoa, 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 Cyrus, you should totally, this is, you should not kill my father. He could be useful to you. Um, it would be immoderate to kill him. And, and he goes through and talks about all the ways that Cyrus would benefit from being moderate with his father. So, you know, if you keep him alive, he'll be so loyal to you and all, all these other things. Um, and so Cyrus apparently at, at, at that moment is meant to learn a lesson on moderation. And it's odd that this comes in the mouth of Tigranes mm -hmm. because Tigranes, uh, how do I put, Tigranes, after he convinces Cyrus not to kill his father, it comes out that Tigranes and Cyrus were friends when they were young. And it also comes out that Tigranes had been taught something by a very wise man. And that Tigranes' father had put that man to death. Hmm. This sounds like Socrates, does it not? Xenophon writing Socrates, and maybe even writing Xenophon, who knows, into the book. And so Cyrus is talking to Tigranes, and he says, Tigranes, your father put to death your wise teacher? I remember that guy. What happened to him? Your father killed him? And Tigranes says, yes, Cyrus, my father killed him. And then the father speaks up and says, Cyrus, you know why I killed that wise man? that was teaching my son, I killed him because I was jealous that he was making my son love him more than he loved me. And if you know anything about Socrates, you know that the fathers in Athens were jealous <laughs> that, that Socrates was making their sons uh, endeared to them more than to their fathers. And so he kills him. But Cyrus says to Tigranes, not, oh, that's such a shame your father killed this man, which you can imagine Xenophon might've thought it was a shame. But Cyrus instead says, Tigranes, what your father did is understandable. Be, you know, be empathetic with your father. This is where you start to see Cyrus's great moderation. that, uh, yeah, he killed the guy. I get that. He, he was going to love, uh, you know, he, he was making you love him, this teacher, more than uh, you loved your dad. I get that. And so there are moments when Cyrus is supposed to perhaps learn something about moderation and, and shows a certain sort of immoderation and none more important than this scene in which a Socratic figure appears and tries to teach moderation. Let's talk a little bit about the education we might receive from Cyrus. Cyrus was, as Xenophon says in book six, a man who intended to do nothing minor. When it's all said and done, he rules essentially the entire known world. What lessons of leadership can be learned from Cyrus 
and what lessons of governing? And are these the same things? That's a really good question. And, and you know, it's a hard one to answer. Um, I mean, the, the, perhaps the great lesson of the book is a lesson that does not appear until one has read the book multiple times. Hmm. And the reason you have to read the book multiple times to see this is that you need to know from the beginning how things end for Cyrus and the Persian Empire. And it's only when you can read the book in the shadow of its conclusion that you begin to see what I'm about to say. And that is that the education of Cyrus, far from being an ideal, idealization of Cyrus, might well be a deep criticism of him and of his way of life and his ambition. And so the education of Cyrus gives itself over to rewarding multiple readings because you start to see the dark hole that Cyrus is headed down and you start to see the psychology that he's implementing, the decisions he's making that lead into that dark hole. And so ultimately, a book which appears to be an idealization of the, of the life of leadership and the political life, it becomes for those who genuinely want to do good in politics, who want to benefit their friends, let's say, that's the reason you might want to enter politics is to benefit your fellow citizens. It becomes a critique of Cyrus and the political life because Cyrus, it does not look like he benefits his friends. I mean, the Persian empire ends up a kind of absolute tyranny where Cyrus is taking things from people, people are scared, there are, you know, spies out uh, in the empire, Cyrus is surrounded by a guard of 10,000 eunuchs, presumably because people want his hide. And so the book comes across in the last analysis as a critique of the political life, not as a support to it. And, and, and so that, that would be one major lesson of the book. And, and of course, that compels you to then think, well, where in Xenophon's literature can I find a life which is more choice worthy than that of Cyrus? And I think there are two places. One is the Anabasis, Xenophon's own life. The second is the memorabilia, the life of his great teacher. So that would be one take home point from the education of Cyrus. But when you talk about governing and leading and ruling, I think one of the things that comes out in the education of Cyrus is that campaigning is very, very different from governing. And this is true even today. We have politicians who love the campaign, yeah. love it too much. And then when they come to govern, they're still campaigning. Cyrus loves the campaign. He loves the campaign and the kind of psychology that he gets to deploy on his men um, to make them hungry, to, to, to conquer more. Yet when it comes time to govern, um, it's, it becomes very difficult to make them love him anymore because he has nothing left to give them. He demands their absolute obedience and he's destroyed their moral character because he's corrupted the Persian education. And so Cyrus, if he does not learn, he at least teaches, the book does, a very valuable lesson about the difference between campaigning and governing and what you should be prepared for should you engage in a campaign and should it come to an end. The great Leo Strauss once observed that Machiavelli cites Xenophon more than he cites Plato, Aristotle, and Cicero combined, and more than any writer but Livy. I've heard you observe once before that you think Machiavelli learned almost everything he knew from Xenophon. 
So what did Machiavelli learn from Xenophon and the education of Cyrus in particular? That's a really good question. I, you know, I think Machiavelli learned a lot from Xenophon. I don't want to claim everything. I have a, I have a pension for overstatement, but I think he <laughs> learned a lot. I mean, one way to see what Machiavelli, you know, learned from Xenophon is to read book one, chapter six of the education of Cyrus, in which Cyrus's father essentially tells him, look, we've taught you to be moral your whole life, to be a good man. Now you're going out into battle. Um, you need to deceive, you need to cheat, you need to steal, you need to lie, and you need to take advantage. We could never tell you that because we taught you that when you were young, you would have done it to your friends and we would not have a Persian city because you can't do that to your friends and have any principle of justice. Yeah. But what we did do is we taught you to do it to animals. When you went hunting, we would say, corner them, set traps for them, take advantage of them. Now, son, do that to your enemies. And Cyrus is scandalized. He's like, what are you talking about? And you see that, I mean, you know, if anyone who's read Machiavelli's Prince, Machiavelli says this much less delicately. Um, and so, you know, there are moments in, in Machiavelli's Prince where you feel a certain xenophontic pulse in what he's saying, although it's stripped of the understatement um, and grace of Xenophon's manner of writing. Um, this is not to say that Xenophon agrees with Machiavelli, and, and I think that Machiavelli signifies this in a, in a certain way. And I believe it is chapter 14 of The Prince, Machiavelli recommends that uh, princes imitate other princes. And he says at, at one point that there's one book that every prince should read is Xenophon's Life of Cyrus. Now, if you've got the Harvey Mansfield translation, Mansfield points out something that's perfectly obvious to anyone who's reasonably well read with these two books. That's not the title of the book. It's not <laughs> titled The Life of Cyrus. And so anytime Machiavelli does something like this, it's not because he's an idiot. It's because he means to communicate something. So the question you have to ask yourself is, why did Xenophon title the book The Education of Cyrus? And Machiavelli in his book said, read the life of Cyrus. Well, that's mm. a hard question that I can't answer. But one of the things that it does by that Machiavelli does by mistitling it is that he puts the emphasis on the life, not the education or the miseducation. Yeah. And I said a moment ago that the book, I believe when properly read is a critique of the life. Machiavelli, however, marshals the book in support of, of a praise in a way of the life hmm. as he does in the Prince. You should want to be like Cyrus is what Machiavelli says, at least in the Prince, whereas Xenophon seems to me to say you should not want to be like Cyrus. And so this gives rise to a much deeper question, which uh, Chris Nadon and others have, have talked about a bit, about how, does Xenophon, how do Xenophon and Machiavelli agree or disagree? And one thing you could think about is whether or not, if Xenophon is in fact using the education of Cyrus to point in the direction of the goodness of the philosophic life, would Machiavelli agree that the philosophic life has some superiority or would he think that the political life does? And the prince, he says one thing, but of course Machiavelli's own life is, is um, quite philosophic in character. And so, so I think that, that uh, you know, Machiavelli finds the education of Cyrus, at least for future princes, to be perfectly good, not a miseducation, as I have argued. However, Xenophon finds that education, at least for his purposes, uh, to, be, to be a miseducation. How do your students react to the book? 
You know, I think initially they find it um, puzzling. Say when we read book one, they're like, what is this free square? And there's all these Persians and they don't spit and they don't pass gas and they're learning about virtue. That's just wholly foreign to them. They're taught in a way to pursue their appetites to the end of, <laughs> of the road. Yeah. And so this, this uh, strikes them as very odd. But what begins to happen is that they begin to revere Cyrus and they see a mm. young man who is conquering the world and impressing his superiors, his grandfather, his uncle, and they begin to empathize with him and imagine that they themselves are such a young man or such a young woman. And so mm. they start to love him and they start to really, um, really hold him up as an ideal. And then when we get to the chapters on love, they begin to be to be troubled by him because they are young and they are um, in the throes of the deepest sorts of confusion about love, you know, when you're 19 or 20 that they'll ever face. And so they ultimately love the book. And I find that at the end of my courses uh, on the last day of class, I often ask students, what is your favorite book? And none comes up more and certainly more than Machiavelli's Prince than Xenophon's Education of Cyrus. He wins them over. Um, and then after Cyrus wins them over, Xenophon wins them over. Is Cyrus the Great? This is sort of an odd question, or it might seem so at first. Is, is Cyrus the Great, a type, or Xenophon Cyrus, a type of person we still see today? Or is the sort of person he's Xenophon is describing so totally alien to us with appetites too large for a world like ours? You know, I think a, a leader on the order of Cyrus as presented in Xenophon's book is rare, but I don't think that such a leader and such a soul, such longings as Cyrus possesses, such nature as Cyrus possesses is wholly foreign to the modern world. If you'll permit me to define modernity as more than the past hundred years and go back to say the 19th century, if you think of um, a speech like Lincoln's Lyceum Address, Lincoln says that men of the, the family of the lion and the tribe of the eagle will arise. And what will we do with them? You know, Alan Gelzo would be the man to talk to about that. But my sense is that that is Lincoln too. <laughs> you know, that, that he is a genius who has a thirst and a drive, which is world historical in character. He cites Napoleon and Caesar and these sorts of things. And so the notion that such a person could arise today is not wholly unbelievable to me. And I would say such people might well arise and be channeled into endeavors other than politics. One could think of business hmm. and the deep conceivably erotic confusion of many of our greatest Silicon Valley titans. <laughs> I just, I leave it at that. Um, <laughs> Or business titans, you know, people like Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk, who are searching for something and they're so desperate to find it that they want to leave this world. They want to go mm -hmm. to Mars and make a new world and not just take over this world, but the universe and and just benefit humanity and gain. I've seen this before in a man named Cyrus. And so one of the things that we do in our in our course here in the engineering leadership program is we will read this book and compare Cyrus's life to that 
of current empire builders. You know, think about someone like Mark Zuckerberg. I mean, there are more daily users of Facebook than there are Christians in the world. That's a giant empire of human beings whose behavior you're shaping on a daily basis. And so I think that the impulses that exist in Cyrus still do express themselves rarely. But I'll say this last thing. There's a little bit of Cyrus in all of us. If you have any ambition at all, it might not be world conquering ambition, but if you have any ambition at all, if you have any desire for people to love you, or as I say to my students, to click the like button on you, to hold you as superior and more beautiful, and you get your surgery and use your Instagram filters, you have some of whatever it was that animated this man inside you that needs to be subjected to an education and moderation and self-criticism and self-reflection. And that's the Socratic education. And so I think this book is certainly written for those great souls in the world, but it's also written for the rest of us in whom a little piece of Cyrus uh, must exist insofar as we're erotic beings. Shiloh, I gave you an impossible task today to cover the entirety of the education of Cyrus in just one hour. I think you did so admirably with absolutely no help from me. I probably made it harder for you, but thank you so much for spending this hour with us. Uh, I encourage all listeners to go get a copy. I'm using the Ambler translation. I think you are as well. It's, It's a book well worth your time. So Shiloh, thank you so much for joining us today on Madison's Notes. Hey, thank you so much. Well, there you go, Madisonians. Shiloh Brooks on the Education of Cyrus. It's an incredibly rich book and a genuine page turner too. So be sure to get your copy today. It's one of those books that belongs on any bookshelf. I have a link to the book in the show notes, as well as a link to the website of the engineering leadership program that Shiloh runs at CU Boulder. Before we bring things to a close, I'll just ask that you please be sure to leave us a five-star rating on iTunes and recommend the show to your friends and to your family. And if you ever have any feedback on the podcast, please don't hesitate to write. You can reach me at ascalia at princeton.edu. I'd love to hear from you. As always, thank you for joining us today, and I hope to have you back with us next time here on Madison's Notes.